For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, welcoming you to the latest readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up email newsletter, to which I do invite you to subscribe so you get a weekly roundup of developments on climate, and also so that we can stay in touch if we get deplatformed. This week, I'm seeing red. Because even GB News, which is an ostensibly conservative British news organization, has taken a page from the alarmist handbook of temperature map coloring to illustrate a coming swing to temperatures as high as 20 degrees Celsius in parts of the UK and Spain. Yes, those charred black wastelands in western Scotland and the Iberian Peninsula indicate places where you might still need a sweater at night. The map reminded us of some sleuthing work done by What's Up With That readers back in 2014, showing how weather agencies had quietly changed their color schemes, with the effect that regions which had once been shown in pleasant green were now illustrated in yellow or red with the same temperatures. Or, at GB News, charcoal black. Not that alarmists need colorful maps when they have a facility for colorful language. Describing the arrival of spring, Greenpeace tweeted that, quote, an early season heat wave is shattering records across North Africa and the Iberian Peninsula. Morocco, Portugal, Spain are all feeling the pain. As the fossil fuel industry roasts the planet, more extreme weather records are being broken, end quote. Roasts the planet? As that same Anthony Watts declared indignantly, quote, 20 degrees Celsius is the same as 68 degrees Fahrenheit. In other words, indoor room temperature, end quote. And weirdly, the BBC's version of the Spain in Flames story was that, quote, while parts of Britain are cooler than average right now, the opposite is the case in many regions of Spain, end quote, even though that map had Britain red. Oh, and for bad measure, the Beeb quoted some professor of climate alarmism that, quote, Europe is warming at twice the global rate, end quote. Who saw that one coming? And if climate change was making Spain hot, why did it skip France? Was it afraid of rude waiters? In the newsletter, we also note that a crucial issue in climate science and policy is whether the world really is getting warmer and at what pace, which in turn raises that question again, how do we know? In Australia, there's been quite the kerfuffle because their Bureau of Meteorology tried to hide the fact that newer temperature probes tend to record higher temperatures than older ones, and it took a series of freedom of information requests to pry the data out of them. Not that they have anything to hide, you understand. And now, we have an item from an alert reader that we share to illustrate the sorts of problems that are hidden behind all those high-tech graphics of bright red oceans. Unexplained ocean warming alarms scientists, the BBC blares. But how do we know how warm the ocean used to be? Well, our correspondent is an old sailor. And he explains that, quote, back in the days before satellites, meteorologists relied on merchant ships reporting weather conditions, end quote. And it was pretty elaborate, quote, ships officers were taught meteorology and equipped with barometers and thermometers by the meteorological office. Readings were taken every six hours and reported by radio, end quote. Well, that's all fine and good, but here's the problem. Quote, the sea surface temperature was obtained with a special narrow rubber bucket attached to a long line, which was thrown over the ship's side to collect about a pint of seawater. It was then hauled in onto the bridge where a thermometer was placed in the bucket to take the temperature. It is something I have done many times, and, being right-handed, I would hold the seawater bucket in my left hand, inserting the thermometer with my right hand. Then, after a few seconds, I would pull out the thermometer and hold it in front of me to read the temperature, pouring the seawater out of the bucket with my left hand. Of course, I was reading the thermometer not when it was actually in the water, but just after it had been taken out and was being cooled by the air, end quote. Oh dear. 
This distorting effect wouldn't have affected apparent trends at the time because it would have been uniform. But when meteorologists appropriately switched to higher tech and more reliable methods, well, you'd get one of those trend discontinuities just where you switch data series that ought always to raise concerns about it being a measurement artifact. And now, a word from our sponsor. And that's you. Because at the Climate Discussion Nexus, we're dependent upon support from our viewers and our readers. Please go to our donate page, make a one-time pledge, or if you can, a monthly one. I'm not talking a lot of money, though. If you've got it, we'll take it. $2 a month, $3, $5. That's the sustaining funding that we need to produce these videos on our newsletter. And now, back to me. In the newsletter, we also bring you this item from our But You Said It Was A Good Deal file. Quote, how the rooftop solar industry is adapting to California's new rulebook that states once thriving industry faces an uneasy future now that California has slashed financial incentives for people to put solar panels on their roof, end quote. Notice how government funding is never cut, it's just slashed. Also, we bring you spring still stinks due to climate change, quote, hay fever hell fueled by climate change as warming affects pollen production, end quote, according to Britain's Express. That's nothing to sneeze at. Meanwhile, Trade War 3 rages on. John Iveson in the National Post writes, quote, These are somber times for free traders. The $8 billion to $13 billion subsidy package to lure a massive Volkswagen battery plant to St. Thomas, Ontario, is Canada's attempt to play with the big boys. But you could almost buy a car company for that amount. Can such lavish subsidies be justified, end quote? And they were just warming up. Also, we bring you an All Climate News is Bad and Everywhere is Warming Faster Than Average one-two punch. A Dutch reader shares an article out of the Netherlands complaining that reducing air pollution means more sunlight hitting the earth and warming it faster, especially their own country, which is warming, drumroll please, Binja keer so veel als het vergemeldet, which means almost twice as much as the global average, end quote. Though no, it's not pronounced the way I just did. Finally, if the Montreal Protocol and CFCs is proof that if governments collaborate they can save us from ourselves, and should again on greenhouse gases, why are the levels of the former gases arising? And now we want to warn the open-minded alarmist that it starts small, maybe a cloud no bigger than a man's hand. You admit minor doubts about some aspect of climate orthodoxy, and before you know it you're marooned on Denier Island with the other outcasts. Thus, the Globe and Mail just ran a Gary Mason column headlined, The Uncomfortable Truth About Canada's Climate Commitments, They Won't Be Met. Not might not be, not require more political will. Of course, Mason doesn't write his own headlines, and so far at least, he's no denier. Instead, he says, quote, The uncomfortable truth is this, Canada doesn't care enough to make the sacrifices we need to in the name of saving our planet, end quote. But as we've noted, it is not in Canada's or any other country's power to stop climate change. Moreover, Canada does care if Canada is a term here meaning our Prime Minister and his dedicated cabinet, with their hugely expensive and ambitious array of climate policies, plus a largely uncritically alarmist media. What's really going on is that those policies are failing for entirely predictable reasons, despite enough political will to sink the Titanic. And at some point you've got to stop blaming the purple meanies and start asking if there's something deeply defective about your understanding of climate, the economy, and how those two interact. And then you realize that just building the transformers needed for the brave new grid is proving an insurmountable task. Bloomberg frets that by backpedaling on phasing out coal, G7 governments are sending the wrong signal. But the issue isn't signals, it's the realities that they signal. 
which is that G7 nations are discovering that they can't get rid of their existing energy infrastructure and keep the lights on because non-nuclear alternative energy just can't get the job done. And speaking of realities, and alternative realities, after years of laments about the lack of snowpack in the American West due to global heating, we now hear from Scientific American that, quote, the West braces for the most epic snowmelt in 40 years, end quote. Being climate-related, it's bad, of course. Quote, communities across the U.S. West are preparing for flooding and mudslide disasters as record snow begins to melt, end quote. But even if it's true, we have to spoil the party by saying your settled science didn't see it coming, did it? So, even if you're right that it's happened, and that it's bad, with a cherry on top that it's climate-related, your models are still worthless. Oh, and last week we discussed the problematic reality that the Canadian government actually has no idea where greenhouse gas emissions are coming from in the country, or in what amounts, making its efforts to measure the impact of its various regulations and taxes futile. And it's the same where you live, behind the smooth verbiage. But now, CTV reports, quote, the economic cost of greenhouse gas emissions is nearly five times higher than previously thought, Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault said Wednesday, end quote. What? Those complex models that justified, say, a $13 billion subsidy for just one battery factory were a complete hooey? On the plus side, conveniently, your anti-carbon policies can be only one-fifth as effective as you claimed, and suddenly they're still worth it which is excellent timing, because this recalibration came just as, quote, last year a federal analysis of regulations to reduce emissions produced from gasoline and diesel said the cost of that policy was about $151 per ton, end quote. So way over the old guess, but way under the new one for you. On the downside, you were just making up all that pseudoscientific econometrics and the climate stuff as well. This week, we also continue our dive down into Ole Humlum's Climate for You data collection by getting our heads up into the clouds in our metaphor and a knot to learn about water vapor. As you know, and as everyone should know, water vapor is the most powerful greenhouse gas by far, much stronger than carbon dioxide. One reason is its absorption of infrared radiation, but another is that the formation of clouds from water vapor and the clouds' subsequent behavior has strong effects on the Earth's climate. Evaporation cools the planet's surface, while condensation further up into the liquid droplets that we see as clouds releases heat and warms the troposphere. Furthermore, cloud tops are reflective surfaces, so they keep some, some sunlight from reaching and heating the surface, though that effect varies by location and type of cloud. So the amount and nature of cloud cover has a very large influence on temperatures. So, what's been happening to cloud cover over the past few decades? Funny you should ask. It's been trending downwards, as shown by this chart from Humlum. And this reduction in cloud cover over the past few decades explains some, and perhaps all, the recent warming, certainly leaves a lot less to attribute to CO2, so clearly that gas is not as important as the models assume. But what caused the diminishing cloud cover? Good question. And the answer, despite all the yapping about settled science, is that no one knows and the models are helpless. In the newsletter, we also note that over at Roger Pilkey Jr.'s Substack channel, he's been digging into the new IPCC synthesis report, in which they supposedly summarize all the science reported in the underlying working group reports of the sixth assessment report, the printing of which has caused the death of many innocent trees, and the destruction of what little integrity the IPCC retained, since as Pilkey Jr. so carefully documents, in the process of writing a summary of a summary of a summary, they made up claims that weren't even in the original report, let alone the underlying scientific literature. In his latest post, Pilkey Jr. turns to the question of what the data actually show about trends in hurricanes, 
major hurricanes and the proportion of hurricanes that are major? And the answer is, there are no trends. So the fact that the IPCC recently claimed that there are and that they're attributable to your gas stove is, as he put it, quote, fiction, misinformation even, end quote. Now, that data set only goes back to 1980. Another, covering the western North Pacific and the North Atlantic, goes back to 1950 and provides a longer picture of the fraction of hurricanes that are major. And here's what it looks like. So, if you only look at the part after 1980, then it's an upward trend, but over the entire data set, there is no trend. Finally, as usual, we delve into the co2science.org archive, this time for a look at what growing trees in urban environments might do to the urban heat island effect looking at nearly 1,400 mature trees from cities to the countryside in various climates, the researchers found that trees seem to be growing faster than they used to, and that city trees are big, perhaps because plants like warmth and CO2 rather than cold and carbon famine. Weird, huh? For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I'm no red.